Pastor Joe DiPaolo, formerly of Soulsbury United Methodist Church, and now in Lancaster, is our guest speaker today. Well, it's really a delight and an honor to come and be invited to speak with you today. It's been it, one most wonderful years of our life are spent here in, in uh, New Hope Solberry. Our kids were young, they were going up. Our oldest daughter just got married last week, and we were just thinking back to the days when she was riding around on her tricycle here, and, and uh, we, we, really, uh, we really loved our time here. And I'm really grateful for Chuck for the invitation to come and, and to speak with you. Um, so I want to share with you a text from Hebrews chapter uh, 11 and 12, beginning with verse 32. Are we going to have it up on the screen? Okay. All right, I'll read it from here. I'm going to use these because my eyes are going. Beginning in verse 32, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went, in about, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to open our hearts to your word and to somehow, by your amazing power and presence, use my frail, fallible, halting words to communicate your eternal, strong, unchanging, life-changing word. In Christ's name, amen. When I was in high school, I ran track for three years. I was never a very good runner. Uh, by my senior year, I had figured out what races I could catch an occasional second or third place in. The hurdles, believe it or not, with these short legs. But when I be began my track uh, career, the coach first decided to assign me to run the two-mile race. And I soon learned, both through practice and in meets, uh, the experience of what runners call, call hitting the wall. If you have any runners here, you know that term, to hit the wall. Uh, that's when you, you come to a point, usually towards the end, the last lap or so, where you just get overcome with this sense of weariness. You're just so tired, so exhausted, you just want to stop and just drop out, hitting the wall. Well, hitting the wall, I think, is not something just re restricted to literal running. But it's something that happens in life. And it's something that happens in the Christian life as well. There are times when we get tired and we get discouraged. When we hit the wall and we feel like dropping out. When that happens, where can we look? To find encouragement to stay in the race, to persevere and not drop out. That's what I want to explore with you today 
as we consider this text. Now, the book of Hebrews is a great book. It's often uh, overlooked. I think we, we tend to neglect Hebrews. It's a rich book full of all kinds of amazing insight about how the Old and New Testament connect to one another, about Jesus' role as our great high priest who made the one perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all time. But Hebrews is a book that we often neglect. The thing about Hebrews is that we don't really know who wrote it. We don't know exactly when or exactly to whom. And those are not conclusions that were reached by modern skeptical scholars. 1,800 years ago, the church father named Origen said, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. (laughs) And though we don't know too many of the specifics, we can still say some things about the book of Hebrews. We can glean from its contents something about the people to whom it was directed. We know it was written by some prominent early church leader who was respected and who had a good command of Greek, by the way. We also know that it was written, as its title suggests, to a group of Hebrew Christians, a community or communities, Christian churches, who were composed mainly of folks who had been raised, reared in Judaism. They had grown up to revere the Torah, uh, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, as we call them today. And they had come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. They had received that news joyfully. They had been eager disciples. They had borne winsome witness, even in the face of persecution and opposition. But something over time had changed. Many had, as our text says in verse 3, grown weary and lost heart. We know from chapter 10, some members of the community had stopped meeting, said they had given up meeting together. We know from chapter 3 that some were considering abandoning the faith altogether. So the author writes to encourage them, to encourage them to persevere, to stick with the race, not to give up, not to give in, but to continue to run that race. He wants to encourage and bolster their faith. Faith is a key word here in this part of the book of Hebrews. In fact, it appears in some form 24 times in chapter 11 alone, some form of the word faith or faithfulness. Beginning in verse 1, when he defines faith as the confidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things we do not see. Well, what causes people to hit the wall? What is it that gets us to the point where we're ready to give up? Well, sometimes I think it's just plain weariness. We get tired. We carry a lot of burdens just in living day to day. Many of us are accustomed to, as someone has said, carrying very heavy burdens on very thin wires. Back then, we don't know all the things they faced, but we know in the first century, the early Christian disciples, well, they had all the normal uh, pressures of life, raising a family, trying to make a living, trying to keep uh, food on the table. They dealt with the fact that they were a marginalized group in a pagan world that was hostile to their faith. If they were people who were skilled artisans, they probably had financial pressures. Because the early trade unions or trade guilds often had pagan worship practices as part of their meetings. And so when the early Christians said, I can't do that, it cost them in their livelihood as well. And I'm sure just the simple realities of dealing day to day with the burdens of life just made people tired, as they do today. Ever have that fantasy of just running away? Ever just want to kind of just pick up stakes and say, I'm going to go off and just start fresh somewhere else? I remember coming across a story from New York City about a bus driver named William Cirillo. In 1947, he had driven a bus for years through New York, and he'd grown really weary. The traffic, 
the attitudes, the, the exhaust, all the burdens of daily living there. And one day, William went to work, went to the bus depot, picked up his bus, and as always, but instead of going to his normal first stop, he made a right turn instead of a left, drove over the George Washington Bridge, and didn't stop until he hit the sunny beaches of Florida in his New York City transit bus. <laughs> when he was brought back under arrest, of course... He became something of a local celebrity. People kind of identified with that, that fantasy, that desire to just run away. His family forgave him. The bus company even gave him his job back. He didn't do it again. But I think we all have those thoughts at times because life sometimes just gets so heavy. We get tired. But I think the bigger reason people give up or hit that wall is discouragement. You get discouraged at times at the pain that comes into your life, and especially the cost of keeping your commitments. Jesus says in the Gospels, count the cost. He warned those who would follow him that there would be times of pain and suffering and opposition. He said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. And I don't think we emphasize that enough in the church because lots of times, especially in our culture, we tend to emphasize the happy, the positive, follow Jesus and your life will be blessed and it will be. You'll have hope and assurance and you will. You'll have joy and purpose and you will. But we often forget to warn that you'll also have opposition. You'll also have struggles. You'll also have times when it costs. Back then in the days of uh, the time when the book of Hebrews was written, we know that they, as I said, encountered opposition uh, we know from the letter itself that members of this early Hebrew Christian community endured insults, opposition. Some were imprisoned. Some had their property confiscated from them. Initially, they had dealt with all of that joyfully, but it just probably went on too long. And they got discouraged. In our society today, we are not taught to count the cost of commitment, that making promises and keeping them can be difficult. Whether that promise is to a spouse or to your God or to your community, it can mean sacrifice. It can mean pain. Some of you, I'm sure, know the um, paraphrase uh, of the Bible called The Message. Uh, it was uh, translated by Eugene Peterson, who just passed away this fall, by the way. In a, one of his books called Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he wrote this. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality flattened by 30-page abridgments. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is very difficult to sustain that interest. In many areas, we seem to have the I'm getting tired, so let's quit mentality, and not just in the spiritual realm. Dieting is a discipline, so we stay fat. Finishing school is a hassle, so we bail out. Cultivating a close relationship is painful, so we back off. Walking through conflicts in a marriage is tiring, so we walk away. And I think there's a lot of that spirit in our culture today. The Christian life is a commitment. It means committing yourself to a disciplined life of following Jesus. That's not something that comes easy or naturally to us. It's something we have to live into day by day. Now, of course, it's based upon a prior commitment of the Lord to us, a commitment in which he held back nothing but gave himself fully and totally for us and to us. It's a commitment that he empowers us to keep by his Holy Spirit. But our response is also a commitment. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, 
It means picking up your cross, which is a, an image of a pain. Of, it's a difficult image. And he even said you have to do it daily. Pick up your cross daily. It can get hard. It means sticking with prayer, getting up in the morning to have that time of devotion, even when maybe people in the household don't support you. And there's such a long list of things to do that day. It means waiting on God for answers to prayer, maybe over the course of months or years. It may mean losing friends who don't share that commitment or being maligned in a community that perhaps wants to think the worst of you. And it can be lonely at times. Chuck mentioned that um, I've been active in the United Methodist Church trying to um, keep it faithful to what it says it believes. If you look at what we say we believe on paper, it's sound, biblical, good stuff. But an awful lot of our leaders seem to have forgotten what's there. Uh, next month, in about a month, I'll be heading up to St. Louis as a delegate to, the, to a general conference, a special general conference. That is the governing body of our global denomination of nearly 13 million members. And um, it's a special session because we've been, we've been racked by conflict over sexuality and gay marriage and all of that. And this is supposed to be uh, a time set aside to deal decisively with that once and for all. And it's going to be a painful event. I think, very difficult event. Of course, I don't think that's the real issue. I think the real issue is really the deeper understanding of the gospel, that there's really rival gospels in the church. Uh, One gospel sees people as victims needing affirmation, while as another gospel sees us as sinners needing redemption. I mean, there's a difference there. And I think that the the sexuality issue is just sort of the the presenting issue. There are deeper questions, but it's going to be difficult. So I do covet your prayers and, and, and thank you for them, but it's going to be a struggle. But I've been at, at this battle for 30 years, and it really gets tiring, and it can be discouraging. But then I read words like this from Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So what do you do when you hit the wall? Where do you look? How do you find encouragement to go on, to persevere, to stay in the race? Well, you know, runners uh, talk about pushing through the wall. If you have some runners here, you know that term. What's interesting is that a lot of runners will say that one of the most important decisions they make is not the shoes they buy or the course they lay out or the time of day that they decide to go running, but the music they listen to while they run. If you Google music to run by, you'll get like hundreds of thousands of hits of, of uh, the best, most motivating music for, for running. And I think maybe the running world's onto something. You might say that in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 11, they offer us a soundtrack, a soundtrack of the saints, uh, a, a, a way to help us to remember the music of the folks who've gone before us who persevered, who stayed in the race, who stuck with it and overcame because their lives and their witness can inspire us. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews has been called the roll call of faith. And there's all kinds of great heroes of the scripture and beyond in that section. Um, But there's two things to note about that, the roll call of faith. One is that they're not all ministers and missionaries. Sometimes we tend to highlight those folks and folks who have regular jobs in the world that don't always identify as well. But it's not just those folks. He has military leaders, kings, women. The widow of Zarephath is is mentioned. Uh, He even talks or alludes to the period between the Old and New Testament during the time of the Maccabees when the Greeks tried to stamp out Judaism, brutally repressed the people, 
Ordinary farmers and artisans stood fast, often were killed and tortured because they refused to give up on their God. That's the first thing to notice. He doesn't just mention the clergy. The second thing to notice about this roll call of faith is that he does not only talk about stories of people where it worked out just fine in the end on this earth. There is a section of that where he talks about folks who achieved great things by faith, routing armies and so forth. But then there's also this section about people who endured awful, awful things. But they stayed faithful. And that's the key. What he's lifting up here in this chapter is an encouragement for us not to always expect success, but to always seek to remain faithful. Faithfulness, keeping our commitments, staying the course, keeping in the race. He calls all these folks that we can bring to mind in chapter 12, verse 1, a great cloud of witnesses. They bear witness to faithfulness and to the faithfulness of God in sustaining them through those struggles. And these are the people I think we need to rediscover. And that's one of my passions is, is doing a lot of digging on history and, and trying to remember these folks that often are forgotten. I mean, we tend to know history only by the generals. We don't know the, the foot soldiers as well. And I like to find those. The books that he mentioned, there's a few books I've put together that kind of bring back to mind people you never heard of but who in their day sought to be faithful amid all the struggles of that time. And I think that's so important because we always look to people to inspire us. And, and we live in a culture that has shifted, I think, in not so good ways. There was a time when we celebrated character and accomplishment, but now, now we celebrate celebrity and personality, and it's a difference. So I think we need to lift up people in the past who've shown by their character, the Christ-like character especially, that they are folks worthy of, of emulating and looking up to. Such folks, our author says, did not really belong to this world. He says the world was not worthy of them. And you know, that cloud of witnesses is even bigger today than it was when he wrote the book of Hebrews. In fact, there's all kinds of people we can look to in this very community. Chuck alluded to the research I did when I was here because I just found out wonderful stories of so many great saints of God who lived in this community and helped to shape it over the years. I'll just share a few of them with you. There was a pastor by the name of Peter O. Studdiford. Kind of a funny sounding name, but he was really the pastor of the area for almost half a century. He was the pastor of both the, what's now the Thompson Presbyterian Church and First Church Lamberville, First Presbyterian Lamberville. And he had charge of both those churches from 1821 to 1866 when he died. And he really was kind of the spiritual leader of, of the area. At a time when he came here, the, the towns had bad reputations. They were, they were kind of riverside, uh, factory towns. Lambertville was known as Bungtown. The Bung is the stopper in a cask of alcohol. That, that was the reputation of the town. The Lambertville Presbyterian Church went from nine members to 300 while he was there. And Peter Studdiford also had charge of a mission Sunday school right here in the borough of New Hope before any churches were founded in the borough. And that mission Sunday school lasted for decades and planted the seeds of faith in many young minds. Now, the Sunday schools then were different than today. Back in the late 17, early 1800s, Sunday school movement began before the days of universal public education. And Christians got together across denominational lines to provide education and literacy skills, especially to the poor who couldn't afford to send their kids to school. And, and with a special emphasis on reaching out to folks like Native Americans or African Americans. They wanted them to read the Bible, to be sure, but they also wanted them to, to be able to just read and, and have an opportunity in life. 
And at the New Hope Sunday School here, they had Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Quakers all working together, planting those seeds of faith. I'll just tell you one story of one seed of faith. A young boy of nine years old came here in 1824 named William Henry Garnett. He was actually an escaped slave. He and his family had been slaves in Maryland. They escaped. New Hope Buckingham Solbury was actually home to a lot of refugees at that time. There were two black churches. One of them was the one whose cemetery you're caring for, uh, Mount Moriah. There was also Mount Gilead up on Buckingham Mountain. And so it was, this area was an important stop on the Underground Railroad. Well, William Henry Garnett and his family came here as they were escaping from slavery. They were here less than a year, but he wrote later that he got his first formal education here in the borough of New Hope. And it was at that Mission Sunday School run by Peter Stutterford and those volunteers from the churches in the region. Garnett later became an ordained Presbyterian pastor himself, a civil rights leader who knew and worked alongside Frederick Douglass. And in 1865, he became the first black man ever to address the U.S. Congress. And he had his start right here in education. I'll give you another story, a real brief one. A woman by the name of Sophia Eisenberg. Now, she was a, a farmer's wife a mom, a homemaker, who raised her family in the fear and love of God. She was one of the founders, her family, uh, of what was the Lumberville Methodist Church up the river a bit that later became part of the Solbury Methodist Church that I served. Back in the 1820s and 30s, they were, it was in their home, I think, the first meetings were held. She had two sons who went into the ministry. One is a Methodist, one is a Baptist. And they founded churches that are still with us to this day, Point Pleasant Baptist Church and Lehman Memorial Methodist Church down in Hatboro. They've been around since the 1830s, ministering the word of God to people for almost 200 years. Sophia Eisenbray raised them to love God. She had a particular gift, it was remembered, for hospitality. You were welcome in her home. Whatever your need was, if you were in need, or especially if you were a preacher, he'd put you up and feed you. And, and on her tombstone, if you go and visit it, it's actually, she's buried at the Lahaska Methodist Church, right on the edge of Peddler's Village. Her tombstone says... She loved the saints of God and was given to hospitality. No one had made headlines. A faithful saint who stayed in the race. I'll give you one more locally. Edith Higgins was a school teacher who taught school here for many, many years. She died in 1986 at the age of 90. She was the last woman to teach at the one-room schoolhouse that is now St. Philip's Episcopal Church. That used to be a schoolhouse. And she became a Christian during the Billy Sunday Crusade in 1916. Some of you ever heard of Billy Sunday? He was the Billy Graham of 100 years ago. He was the most famous national evangelist. He did a, a crusade in Trenton and then came up, preached at First Presbyterian Church in Lambertville. And people came in by the hundreds and the thousands by trolleys to hear him preach. Well, Edith was one of his converts. She was in her 20s. She was baptized as an adult and then joined the little Presbyterian church that now is the library right down the street here where she taught Sunday school and was a Sunday school superintendent for many years. In the 1950s, she became the first woman to gain a seat on that bastion of male authority, the Board of Trustees. <laughs> but she was remembered as a great woman of God, uh, even years later. I mean, she had died. She'd been gone years when I came to New Hope, but people still talked about her. Those are just some of the folks that are our spiritual forebears in this area. And you know, some of them are right here. Some of the cloud of witnesses are sitting among you here this morning. Maybe it's someone that brought you to Christ or someone that mentored you and, and helped disciple you in your early days. Maybe it's someone that went with you on a mission trip and, and you saw the love of Christ in action through them. 
These are people that helped you remember why you entered the race. Because they bore witness to the love of Christ. And they still do. And I know this church is about 20 years old now. I don't know if you've ever done a history of it. You ought to do it. You ought to record some of those stories of some of the people whose lives were changed through this ministry. And remember them because they are those cloud of witnesses to encourage us. Back in the days when I ran in the two-mile race, I said I wasn't a very good runner, and I wasn't. There used to be two big uh, times of cheering from the stands. The stands during the meets would be full of, you know, students and parents and so forth. One was at the, uh, to decide who the winner was, you know, when the the first people came in on the final lap, who's going to win the race? Then there was another big bunch of cheering at the end, because that's when me and my friend Tony would show up. (laughs) We were the last two, almost always. But there'd be all the, and both of us were like, oh, man. But there'd be all this cheering to encourage us to keep on in until we cross the finish line. And you know, those cheers from the stands, they made a difference in encouraging us to stay in the race. And I think the great saints, the great cloud of witnesses, the stories of the people who stayed faithful, who showed the love of Christ to you, to me, to this community, they're like folks filling the stands. They're cheering us on. So we need to remember their stories. Well, above all, our author says... We must fix our eyes on Jesus. He says that in verse 1, whom he calls the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The pioneer, the one who blazed the trail, and the perfecter, the one who models for us what faithfulness looks like and who empowers us by his spirit to stay on track. I find it interesting how we can get so surprised these days in the Christian movement by setbacks and suffering and opposition. For us, when we encountered those kinds of things, it's a crisis of faith. I don't understand. I'm trying to be faithful. Why am I suffering? Lord, I don't get it. Are you there? What's happening? Why I find that interesting and puzzling is because the early church had a very different attitude towards suffering and hardship and opposition. They expected it. Not only did they expect it, they saw it as a sign of being faithful. Here's a text from 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why are we surprised when we encounter opposition and hardship? Because at the very center of the story is the Lord whom we follow nailed to a cross. I mean, he endured that for us. He was opposed by sinful men, as it says in chapter 12 of Hebrews. When we hit the wall, when we get discouraged, whether it's a wall of weariness or or a wall of opposition, it should not only not surprise us, It should not demoralize us because we know the cross was not the end of the story. God raised Jesus up on the third day and has given him the name that is above every name, as the scripture says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bend, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We know that God's purposes will triumph in us and through us. I mentioned the message earlier, Peterson's paraphrase. Here's how he renders those opening verses of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. 
He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is a shining beacon for us. It tells us that God's faithfulness never flags or falters. Even amid trials, God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't give up on us. Ultimately, what holds us in the race is God's perseverance. God's unwillingness to hit the wall and get discouraged and give up. His stubborn, persistent efforts to win us back to his love. Another of my favorite authors is a guy named William Willimon, who in one of his books tells a story about a chaplain that he knew, a seminary student who was a chaplain in a state prison while still going to school. And this young chaplain received a request one day from the father of an inmate who had recently been uh, assigned to that prison. He wanted to come and see his boy. This young man had committed a robbery, and he had been sentenced to many years in jail, and he was angry, and he was bitter. The boy's father came out to see his son, but his son refused to see him, and the chaplain had had to bring back the news, your boy doesn't want to see you. The chaplain was asked to intervene, to plead with the boy, but the young prisoner refused to reconsider. So the father went home. But despite that initial rejection, he came back the next week and the week after and the week after. Every week, this father would get off work early on Friday, catch a bus, head across the state in the hopes that his boy might see him that day. And every week, the chaplain had to bring back the unwelcome news that his son still refused to see him. One day, the chaplain finally said to this father, you know, you don't need to do this anymore. No one would put up with your putting up with what you're putting up with. Your son is an embittered, angry, defiant young man. Go back home. Get on with your life. No one would do what you're doing. No one would put up with that kind of rejection. Nobody would do this. And the father looked at the chaplain and said, the Lord has put up with it for centuries. As he packed up his belongings, headed back home, only to return the next week. And this young chaplain said that he could not help but fall to his knees, for to him it was a vision of the persistent, stubborn perseverance of the God who refuses to give up on this world he so loved that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let me ask you, have you grown weary in following Jesus? Have you hit the wall? Do you find that the setbacks of life, the ugliness of this world, the indifference of so many people to the eternal, most important eternal questions of life and death and God and heaven and hell, do you find that that stuff has left you discouraged, tired, wanted to bail out, drop out of the race? Then I encourage you to tune in to the music of that great cloud of witnesses of every generation, past and present. The folks that are cheering us on, telling us to keep our eyes on the goal of God's eternal kingdom and not lose heart. And above all, I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who went through the worst this world can possibly dish out 
but by the grace and power of the Father, was raised up in triumph. I want to close with some words from Paul, who I suspect had his own times when he felt like giving up. And he wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, I give you thanks for that great cloud of witnesses, the people in our lives, some of whom are with us even now, others who have preceded us by generations. We thank you for that cloud of witnesses whose lives inspire us, whose lives show what your power can do, what your grace can do. Lord, help us to remember so that we can be encouraged. If there's anyone here, Lord, who is discouraged and feeling tired and wanting to drop out, Lord, I pray that your spirit would revive them and encourage them and give them new energy, new hope, new zeal. And Lord, above all, help us keep our eyes upon you. You are the one. You are the one who's gone before. You're the one who holds everything in your hands, past, present, and future. And in you, we are secure and our hope is sure. We, Lord, help strengthen that assurance of things not seen that certainty of things hoped for. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.